Hello and welcome to the curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we speak with the director of the stunning documentary Fire of Love. You're with them every step of the way from, you know, the mundane moments at their home in Alsace, France, to um, being on the edge of an erupting crater. Plus, Pharrell Williams is the new Louis Vuitton man's designer. He has run his own fashion and beauty brands, he has run hotels, and he's an entertainer. So I think, in a way, he's actually even better equipped to deal with the demands of a brand the size of Louis Vuitton. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This week we've received a special visit from Olga Tokariuk, Ukraine correspondent and resident fellow at the Reuters Institute, and by Michael Binion as well, the foreign affairs specialist for the Times newspaper. They were discussing on the Monaco Daily about the gathering between NATO and other defense ministers to discuss the latest situation in Ukraine. We will meet uh, later on today in the US-led uh, contact group uh, for uh, Ukraine and address the urgent needs for increased support to Ukraine. Not least the need to provide more ammunition and also how to ramp up production and strengthen our defense industry to be able to provide the necessary ammunition to Ukraine and also to replenish our own stocks. That was Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary-General, speaking earlier in Brussels. Um, Olga, we will get onto the specifics of this meeting shortly, but it is, as I was saying, nearly a year into this. Um, what's your estimation of, of, of how Ukraine is holding up generally? Well, um, I think we can all agree that Ukraine is holding up pretty well and that uh, Ukraine has managed to exceed all the expectations. Mm. Well, obviously, the initial expectations that Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, last year in uh, Kherson, in Kharkiv regions, were really impressive. And I think that was that opened the way to more military support to Ukraine, to the provision of weapons which were denied initially and for which Ukrainians were asking um, for many for many months, um, but of course, um, Ukraine is also um, suffering heavy losses. And in the past uh, weeks, especially, we've seen um, heavy Ukrainian losses and um, some retreats in the Donetsk region. Uh, heavy battles are going on in Bakhmut now, and the issue of having enough stocks of weapons is very crucial. Is important. Uh, there, there is, uh, there are people. So the, the, there is no shortage of um, people ready to fight, and uh, there is still overwhelming support in the society for the Ukrainian military, for the government, for the idea of resistance and uh, fighting back. Uh, but what is crucial is that uh, Ukrainians need, and Ukrainian military, they need to have the means to fight back, to continue fighting back, and to continue not just fighting back, but also um, going on counteroffensive again and regaining uh, the territories that were occupied by Russia either in 2022 but also in 2014. Um, Michael, Jens Stoltenberg was also suggesting that NATO countries in particular are going to have to step up their defence spending, and that obviously is not going to be an insignificant commitment. Do you think a year into this, I guess European publics in particular have been somewhat insulated 
and not least by the communications of their political leaders from the realities of this. Do NATO leaders need to start saying things like, we are at barely one remove at war here, and we are going to need to start thinking that way in terms of how we allocate our resources? Well, they might need to, but I'm not sure they will say that. And what they will say is that we must give more weapons to Ukraine. Uh, They've agreed in principle to give tanks, but of course this will take a long time. Mm. What they need right now is ammunition. They need uh, something that can be deployed straight away on the battlefield. And I think Western public opinion is ready to uh, agree to that. But of course, whether Western public opinion is ready to spend the extra money to replenish the ammunition and the weapons and the other things that have gone out out of their own stocks to Ukraine, well, that I'm not sure. Budgets are tight. Uh, The British Defence Ministry clearly is looking for more money, and I'm not sure that it's going to get it because uh, there's really no new money for anything much in Britain. And I think that uh, Western public opinion is still a bit insulated from the idea that we're actually on the brink of real conflict ourselves with Russia. Well, on the subject of... uh resources and ammunition and the urgency of getting it there. We also heard today from Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of State for Defence. He says he expects Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive against Russia in the spring. And because of that, you know, we are, we, all the partners in the, in the Ukraine Defence Contact Group have been working hard to ensure that they have uh, the armoured capability, uh, the fires, the sustainment to be able to be effective in creating the effects on the battlefield that they want to create. Lloyd Austin, US Defence Secretary, speaking today in Brussels. Um, Olgur, I appreciate that there probably isn't a short answer to this question, but what does Ukraine still need? Well, Ukrainian officials... um actually say answer that question quite frequently almost at every press briefing and last uh, a week president zelensky spoke about this while visiting london here in the uk and he said that of course ukraine what he came to ask for were fighter jets but mm-hmm. ukraine also needs a lot of other things ukraine needs more tanks ukraine needs more armored vehicles which might seem trivial but it is not because ukraine doesn't even have enough of armored vehicles very often the military on the uh, front line they're using civilian vehicles and you know they are suffering from landmines there are massive like amount of casualties because of civilian vehicles that Ukrainian military is forced to use because of shortage of the armored vehicles. Um, so you know. Um, it's remarkable that one year into the war, even this issue is not resolved. Ukraine does not even have enough armored vehicles. Then, of course, the air defense, something that was discussed today at this uh, at the Rammstein meeting, uh, more air defense systems and. Uh, um, all types of uh, uh, ammunition, uh, yeah, definitely uh, Ukraine wouldn't say no to any of those, I think. Uh, Michael, on the subject of the fighter jets in particular, we seem to be doing uh, a revisit of the dance that was done around the tanks. People saying, oh, we couldn't possibly, unacceptable escalation, Russia would get terribly upset, um, somebody else should do it, I don't want to, I'll do it if you do it, etc., etc. Are we basically doing the same thing with the fighter jets to the same end? Is Ukraine going to get the F-16s in particular at once? I don't think they will get them, and certainly not straight away. They may get them in the long term, but the problem is that once, even if they fly them or, or get them there, 
it takes quite a while before they can be used. You have to、mm. train the pilots.、Uh, what would be much more sensible is if, for example, Poland was able to send over its MiGs, which Ukrainian pilots are able to fly, are used to flying. They could be deployed straight away. Then the F-16s or whatever other planes that NATO could supply could fill the gaps in the Polish air force.、Uh, sending sending Western advanced aircraft to Ukraine, it's a great idea, and Zelensky made a very impassioned plea for that in Britain, and it was received with great、um, enthusiasm. But there was no actual commitment from the British government to do anything in response, apart from to say, "Yes, we understand your need, and we will support you." And I rather fear we're getting the same response from a number of other Western countries. And this week has been a busy one in the fashion world, when Pharrell Williams was announced as Louis Vuitton's new men's designer. Our fashion editor Natalie Theodosi is here to tell us more. It was a big surprise. I think、um, the fashion world has been waiting for over a year and a half for the position to be filled after the previous men's artistic director Virgil Abloh passed away in 2021. I thought it was a very interesting move by Louis Vuitton. Pharrell Williams, of course, is not a traditional designer, but he has run his own fashion and beauty brands. He has run hotels, and he's an entertainer. So I think, in a way, it, he's actually. Even better equipped to deal with the demands of、uh, a brand the size of Louis Vuitton. It's it's a brand that whose revenues are twenty billion dollars, the the biggest one in the world.、Um, and、uh, he he has multifaceted skills that can live up to the demands of that job, which include. Uh, putting together these large-scale shows,、uh, opening stores, coming up with、uh, com- campaign concepts—it's not just about designing collections. So he could be a great fit. So when I heard the news, I was I was thinking about what this tells us about who can become a fashion designer nowadays. How controversial has this appointment been? It has been quite controversial, and a lot of、uh, fashion industry professionals have reacted against it. They were hoping that the position would be filled by one of the menswear talents,、uh, like Martin Rose or Grace Wells Bonner,、uh, who are more traditionally trained designers. But I think there is a difference between being a designer and being an artistic director, where you have to.、Uh, Look at all these other elements of the brand, whether it's the stores, concept shows. So it depends. Nowadays, you have to decide whether you want to be a designer or if you have ambitions to be a creative director. What do you expect now from Pharrell Williams? God, it's I, I, it's never it's never been done before.、Um, uh, someone who is not a traditional designer at all to to take on this position. So, I think expect the unexpected. Anything can happen, but definitely, I think their ambitions are really large. And they spoke about turning Louis Vuitton into a cultural house, not just a fashion house. So, a lot of projects beyond fashion as well, including、um, the hotel that they're planning to open in Paris in around five years' time. We also. We've also, we've also got news from the rival Caring. There's a new creative director at Gucci, and we're also seeing efforts to rebrand Balenciaga. Shall we start with news from Gucci? Yes. So. Unlike the big bold announcements of、uh, LVMH and Louis Vuitton at Caring, I think、um, there's、uh, a bit more 
trouble and, and more transitions. Uh, Gucci announced um, the, a new creative director, Sabato de Sarno, and they are trying to completely rebrand uh, what Gucci stands for, moving into uh, more classic uh, clothes, a lot of tailoring. They're opening up luggage stores. But it remains to be seen if such a complete uh, turn from what they've been known for will work and, and if their formula will be successful. And it's the same with uh, Balenciaga, another one of the of the big high-earning brands uh, of carrying. Uh, they are planning a return to the catwalk this March during Paris Fashion Week and they've uh, issued uh, this, this past week apologies for a series of um, quite insensitive campaigns that had been linked to child pornography. But the reaction so far is that it's too little, too late, and um, it rem- again, it, it will be hard for them to bounce back and to keep up with the sales that they used to have before those campaigns um, were, were were published. Well, Natalie, you are now getting prepared for the London Fashion Week. It starts on Friday. What is to come? London Fashion Week is um, quite a, a smaller, calmer fashion week. There's a lot of young talent. That's where the LVMHs and the Carings usually come to to find young talent that graduates from Central St. Martin. So the scale of the shows is smaller, but we are going to have, for the first time in quite a few years, two uh, bigger names uh, on the calendar. Burberry is back with a new creative director as well, Daniel Lee, who used to head uh, Bottega Veneta. Um, and uh, they've already teased um, that uh, comeback with a new logo and um, talk about returning to the company's British roots. And also Moncler um, and its Moncler Genius um, brand are going to be uh, staging this big uh, scale presentation on the Monday evening at the London Olympia Centre. It's open to the public, which usually doesn't happen Mm. with with fashion shows. And they will be introducing a series of collaborations with um, companies like Mercedes. So again, not uh, traditional design collaborations and people can buy tickets and um, go and see it. You are listening to the curator here on Monaco 24. The Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic Jerry Saltz has, by his own description, forged an unlikely path to become one of the best-known art critics in the United States. He hadn't written a single published word until he was 40 years old, when he was working as a long-haul truck driver. He became senior art critic for The Village Voice before being appointed in 2006 to his current role at New York Magazine and its own personal history, as well as that of art in the 21st century, that formed the subjects of his latest book, Art is Life, Icons and Iconoclasts, Visionaries and Vigilantes, and Flashes of Hope in the Night. He spoke to Monaco's Thomas Lewis, who began by asking him to unpick the book's title. In a way, what this is is a history of the 21st century in art, as told by a trench critic, me, who accidentally and on purpose strapped himself to the mast of the art ship and seeing 25 to 30 shows a week in New York, where I live and I write weekly and now daily on Instagram, when I write weekly, it's for New York Magazine, seeing 25 to 30 shows a week and somehow 
what I was able to glean by being in the middle of this incredible tectonic shift of art was an up-close witness. We all have to understand, anybody listening to this in any country will understand that all the art made in the 21st century was not made under anything like normal circumstances. From the beginning, in the United States at least, where I'm based, it starts with a contested election. It then goes to 2001, when all the world was entertaining the bizarre topian notion that we were, A, living at the end of history, and that history was all going to arc towards the dem democratic, and two, the context of no context. The idiot dream that everything was happening to everybody everywhere in the same way at the same time, all of that to finish. Even if your listeners are making just stripes and squiggles, pretty still lives or portraits, the deep content of now, of those contexts of this time, I see it in your work. You do not have to fret that your work is relevant or political enough. In fact, usually the most obvious art is the least art-like and the least useful. Mystery has always been one of the secret burning bushes of art. And that's the story this book tells by me from my one little bizarre seat of not leaving New York that often. I think that art changes minds and minds change other people's lives. In that sense, art is life for those reasons. I use what might seem too crunchy a new age title as art is life, because to me it is. And in that context then, Jerry, would you say that the way, the way that you look at art, the way that you see a piece of work, has that changed over time, would you say? And if so, how? For many decades, I would go, I, I like this or I don't like this. What do you think to the person next to me? And the minute you hear what another mind is thinking, you've doubled what the work is. Uh, not 100% of the time, it's shit you never thought of. And in my dumb book, Art is Life, I recount scores of those instances and again, how the synchronicitous mind, that is like hearing a song, reading a line, bumping into somebody while you're looking at something, contributes to what you are seeing and what has been seen. And finally, I would say to remember, art is never the same. Your Hamlet and my Hamlet are different. That's what great work of arts are. When you just are reading the wall label that tells you to see Ferguson, Missouri, it's never different. It's always the same. And everybody has the same photograph. To me, that's illustration and commercial art. Nothing wrong with it. But don't be intimidated. Tell yourself the wildest stories. You can't prove a Vermeer is better than Norman Rockwell. Art, my loves, is 100% subjective. And that's the beauty of it. It's the most advanced operating system our species has ever devised to examine and probe consciousness.
last year, Jerry, several artworks at, at museums around the world were targets for for climate protesters. You wrote several responses to each of those incidents at the at the time. They weren't, of course, the first time that art's been been used as a vehicle for protest against something else. But forgive me if this isn't a particularly you know grand way of putting this, but you know, in your mind, is it ever okay to, for example, throw a bowl of watery mashed potatoes or the contents of a can of soup at a work of art in the name of protest? Well, I thought the most creative one was the man that tried to glue his head to the Mona Lisa or glue his head to something. What was it? It was Vermeer's The Girl with the Pearly Ring, I think. Yes, I was pretty struck by that. And nobody in their right mind would say a painting, a, a canvas smeared with paint, no matter who did the smearing, is more important than the coastline of Norway. Nobody will ever say that. The problem is, if you ask the question, Tomas, that you just asked of me, and you do it in public, the, per, the I'm immediately placed in the position, and this happened to me, articles were written about me than about being complicit, compliant, part of the problem. Jerry Saltz doesn't want to address the climate. I'm always for a critic getting spanked publicly, right? It always makes everybody feel good when people hate critics. I love it when other critics are attacked. Instead of doing something, we get to click like and write a nasty comment to Jerry. So really what the art world is doing is commenting on the performance rather than what the performance was trying to address. If they want to keep doing it, they're going to keep doing it. It's a nightmare. It's, it's a monstrosity and a deformity that these children are being brought into. Um, and whatever they do, I'm not going to say it's wrong. I hate that one form of beauty is attacking another but I'm not here to tell other people how to get through the climate problem. I predict that this year a work of art will be not destroyed, but severely damaged. These are viral attempts. It's already become a caricature of itself. The shows will become far too expensive to mount or ready with the insurance. If you owned a Van Gogh in your family, would you loan it to a major museum right now? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The insurance, the loans are going to stop. The security apparatus in museums is already... I was just in the communications department of a major museum. You cannot believe the fortunes they're having to already pour into it. And this is money that they cannot go to programming anymore. There's going to be limited attendance. Just... A nightmare. And I understand the climate is the cause that trumps all. But think about it, kids. And for our show, The Foreign Desk Explainer this week, Andrew Muller explains Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul Israel's judicial system, which has led to mass protests. Every successful democracy is founded on a paradox that everybody accepts that nobody is going to get everything they want. However, because some people are greedy and or unscrupulous, and there is, just arguably, a disproportionate tendency among people of that cohort to pursue a life in politics, safeguards need to be erected. Key among these is an independent judiciary, 
Judges who will interpret and apply the law and constitution up to and including overruling the will of the government of the day. The politician who complains that judges are thwarting them is merely confirming that the judges are doing their job. The crucial importance of an independent judiciary was invoked this week by the present leader of a republic founded by people who thought long and hard about this. US President Joe Biden relayed via the unorthodox route of Thomas Friedman's dreadful column in the New York Times the following. The genius of American democracy and Israeli democracy is that they are both built on strong institutions, on checks and balances, on an independent judiciary. Building consensus for fundamental changes is really important to ensure that the people buy into them so they can be sustained. This is an extraordinary intervention by Biden. One struggles to recall in the last half century or so quite so flagrant a public rebuke of an Israeli prime minister by a US president. In making it, Biden has placed himself firmly on the side of those Israelis who have been demonstrating in ever larger numbers against, to borrow Biden's phrase, fundamental changes to Israel's judiciary being proposed by Israel's recently restored Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This past Monday, the crowds were estimated at north of 100,000 people. Quite the turnout in a country with a population of just over 9 million. These are the crucial days for Israel's future and Israel's identity, whether it's going to be a democracy or a fascist regime. Netanyahu's proposed reforms would end the current system whereby judges are appointed by an independent committee and award that control to the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Netanyahu also wants the Knesset to have the power to overturn Supreme Court decisions it finds disagreeable, as opposed to the current settlement whereby the Supreme Court can overturn laws passed by the Knesset. Netanyahu's pitch is that it is essentially undemocratic for the elected parliament to have to submit to appointed judges. Among Netanyahu's many flaws of character, stupidity is not to be found. He cannot possibly believe this. Indeed, he doesn't, or at least he didn't in 2012, when he said the following during one of his previous stints as Prime Minister. I believe that a strong independent court allows for the existence of all other institutions in a democracy. I ask that you show me one dictatorship, one undemocratic society, where a strong independent court system exists. There is no such thing. In places with no strong and independent court system, rights cannot be protected. Well, quite. And much the more so in a country such as Israel, whose parliament has no upper chamber charged with reviewing the decisions of the People's Assembly, nor written constitution. And 2012 Netanyahu has on his side 2023 Israeli Attorney General Gali Baharav Miara, who thinks Netanyahu's reforms would, quote, fundamentally change the democratic nature of the state's governance, unquote, and 2003 Israeli President Isaac Herzog, who fretted in an astonishing address to the nation last Sunday that the Prime Minister had placed Israel on the brink of constitutional and social collapse. Also not among Benjamin Netanyahu's many flaws of character is a lack of regard for the country he leads. 
As a younger man serving with the Sayeret Matkal, roughly Israel's special forces equivalent of the UK's SAS, he risked his neck for it on several occasions. The reasonable listener may therefore wonder why he is wanging his sledgehammer at its foundations with quite such reckless abandon. It is partly just politics. Netanyahu commands a slender majority in the current Knesset, and his coalition is substantially comprised of ultra-nationalist far-right kooks who are unkeen on being told by judges or anyone else that they cannot do as they please. And it is partly self-preservation on Netanyahu's part. Israel has faults, to be sure, but a toothless, pliant judiciary has never been among them. Israeli courts have on several occasions been commendably unimpressed by the CV of the defendant. Ehud Olmert, who was Prime Minister from 2006 to 2009, later spent 16 months in prison for fraud. Moshe Katsav, who was President from 2000 to 2007, got five years for rape and obstruction of justice. And very possibly not coincidentally to the current brouhaha, Netanyahu is still on the hook on corruption charges, which could yet mean that the next volume of his memoirs takes the form of a prison diary. It is possible that Netanyahu is doing that thing of staking out an extreme position only to retreat to where he wanted to be anyway and claiming credit for the compromise. It has to be hoped so. As well as risking Israel's democratic stature and the economic prosperity it has permitted, Netanyahu is taking startling liberties with Israel's security. Israel, very often historically in the person of Benjamin Netanyahu, is fond of fortifying its position on the moral high ground by claiming to be a democratic bastion amid the tyrannies of the region. That becomes a harder claim to make when you have less in common with Joe Biden than you do with Viktor Orban or Vladimir Putin. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullen. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, and this is a special one. Our global countdown this week was a bit different. This time, I went through the carnival hits of 2023. Monocle 24 senior correspondent Fernanda Augusta Pacheco joins me for the weekly global countdown. But this week, Faye, we're not going to a country. Well, we are, but there's a glittery headdress special. It's, I... car- it's carnival week. It's Carnival Week, and that's the most important uh, moment for the Brazilian music world. I mean, because that's when artists release the tracks that might do well. And remember, we celebrate Carnival the whole week. I mean, there's a lot of pre-Carnival parties as well. It's a never-ending thing there in Brazil. So, I mean, go... Looking into the dim and distant past of, let's say, the United Kingdom, everyone who went bananas for the Christmas number one. Do you have the equivalent of a carnival number one in Brazil? We do have an equivalent, and I will be talking about this throughout this five songs that I chose. In five fact, songs? In fact, six, because I am a little bit naughty here. Uh, and sometimes it's quite organic, sometimes very hard to predict which song actually might do well. Sometimes a top artist releases a hit that doesn't really connect with people. But, you know, we, we, we'll look into those examples that I'll give so to you. So are we looking to, at this year's contenders for 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 carnival number one absolutely Excellent. so this is this a sort of like five four three two one position or is this just 
What phase head has offered us today? What phase head is like my predictions. I'm, I'm playing a little bit of a, a magic game here. So it's, it's my predictions. <laughs> good, good. Right. Okay. So who are we starting or who or what are we starting with? Well, I'm starting in a very safe way because she is the Queen of Carnival. She is celebrating 30 years of her career uh, this year. It's the wonderful Ivete Sangalo. I mean, she is a blockbuster name in Brazil. I mean, if she's going to perform, you can be sure that it will be sold out. Uh, and, you know, she's still releasing great singles as well. And this is one of them. Could do very well this year's carnival. It's called Cria da Ivete, which is something like Ivete's Babies. Right, okay, well, we start off with a bit of a punch. That's the Queen of Carnival, and you can tell. So tell us a little bit more, more about this lady, Ivete she, Sangala. She's energetic. She's from Bahia, of course, and that's what, you know, the majority of Brazilian artists, they come from Bahia. It's such a music, musical state. And the genre she became known as is Axé, which, again, was created in Bahia, and is a mixture of uh, several genres. There's a little bit of Afro-Caribbean touch, reggae, calypso, uh, frevo as well from Brazil. It's a very, you have to dance uh, when you listen to it and she's fun she doesn't take herself too seriously she says in the lyrics single no happy you know if there are drinks i'll be drinking <laughs> with my experienced friends your experienced friends whatever I think that we means heard about some of them from tom webber a little exactly, bit earlier on exactly um, let's move on to uh well frankly you i'm going to get you to spell the name of the next artist because the video requires googling simply for absolutely all the wrong reasons unless you are a manufacturer of incredibly adhesive underwear because my goodness do the dancers in this video need need it I mean, it's incredible the it way they dance. It is it, It's basically uh, Thaisa Maravilha. Uh, she's part of the Bonde das Maravilhas, which is a group of full of uh, kind of female MCs. Uh, but they also are dancers as well. Mm. And this new track called Ensaio das Maravilhas, I agree with you, Emma. You do have to Google because there's very complex choreography involved. Is that what you call it? It's That's exactly. For Excellent. example, <laughs> one of them, you have to touch your ankle on your butt. But, you know, when you look at the video, I mean, it's frank. That's impossible. the least of our worries, I think, given what's going I mean, when, when you're sort of like talking to dance to, it is in inverted commas. Uh, I think it's something like twerking, but with about 300 volts being fed through yeah, your body at the but, same time. But one thing I, I, I might agree with you, everybody's talking about twerking. Mm. In Brazil, we've been twerking for decades, Darling, you know. I know. You know, it's not a new thing for us, no. you know. It, 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 it comes very natural. The master twerker. Yes, shall okay. we have a listen to this? Please, song? and let's limber our hem- hips up for it. Ensayo de Maravillas, is that how you said? Excellent. Look it up. Um, next one, um, we're going to somewhere called uh, someone called Tubarão. Who are they? Yeah, it's it's a song. Tubarão te amo, shark, I love you. Nice. It's a track full of uh, MCs. I mean, there's the, a long list of of the artists here, and they actually sampled an Axé song, the rhythm I was talking to you about Yvette Sangalo. So it, this song is a lot of samples in there. It can be a little bit harsh, but young people are loving it. it became viral on TikTok. It's been number one for quite a few months as well, and I think it might continue during carnival it's not for everyone emma but let's have a listen we have a clip of it (laughs) 
I'm not gonna lie, there's something quite raw about it that I like it, you know? Oh, it's I, fine. I shouldn't like it, but I do. You know, there's it's, something that attracts me to the song. It's excellent to be played out of the car at two o'clock in the morning by badly behaved young people. Exactly. It's perfect. Uh, let's move to something a little bit cooler from a from a group who we have on the playlist but have a really lovely smooth retro style to them absolutely i think you will love this uh, bala desejo one of my favorite brazilian bands of the moment they released one of my favorite albums again called sing 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 and this song is actually about carnival it's called baile de mascaras the masked ball uh, and again when you listen to that you remind me of the, the golden age of brazilian music in the 70s in the 80s as well it's beautiful it's suave and i'm sure we do very well in the carnival blocks as well Let's have a swish along to it. You instantly have glossier hair when you listen to yes, that. Yes, it's dreamy. It's I, very dreamy. I love it. Mm. Uh, and, and again, you know, there's space for everyone in Carnival. It used to be just samba, but look at the, the variety of genres we're doing here. There's kick flares and a waistline to that. That's exactly. wonderful. Okay, let's move on. Uh, finally, I think we're going to have something from, well, the culture minister of Brazil, frankly, has walked the walk, hasn't she? Yes, but we have actually two more tracks. Ah, and the first sorry. one, we're going to play a very quick uh, clip of this. I think this is actually going to be the number one song uh, of this year's Carnival. His name is Leosan a very handsome a six foot six man uh, and, and again there's apparently a petition of straight men in Brazil saying please don't do your dance videos otherwise our wives would be crazy about it I mean of course this is a joke uh, but yes he's handsome you never know in Brazil you never know right no. you never know let's have a quick listen to Léo Santana Zona de Perigo Danger Zone <laughs> Compared with all the others, sounds a Derek. Gosh, goodness, no, no disrespect to Leo Santana, but it sounds a bit low rent. It, it is a bit low rent, but I don't know what actually managed to connect. I think it's the sexy lyrics. She was kissing my mouth, touching the back of my head. I am enjoying. It's very descriptive song, uh, and perhaps a little bit romantic. But I do agree with you, Emma. The the beat is not there, energetic, but Brazilians Neither are do loving the it. The lyrics sound it. Frankly, I mean, it doesn't sound like an exact charmer. I can't imagine <laughs> sitting here next to him for the evening, going, "Gosh." Wowie with those lyrics. All right, but obviously he hits the spot somewhere. So finally, I do want to hear about Margaret Menezes. I mean, Margaret Menezes, she's our culture minister and she's another carnival queen. She's 60 years old now. But in fact, besides her jobs as culture minister, she will be performing this year's carnival in João Pessoa. She's going to Bahia. There's a lot of tributes to her. She had an amazing uh, music career. Uh, she's very much rela- uh, you know, associated with carnival. I chose uh, to end uh, the show a lovely track by her it's called Farao by Margaret Menezes let's have a listen it's a very enjoyable track sort of delivered her political speeches in that style. I think, well, actually, frankly, any politician That'd be could quite useful, right? Well, it would get the message home. Fernanda <laughs> Agosta Pacheco, thank you so much for our carnival special. And as always, we have a lovely recipe for you from Food Neighbourhoods. This time with Rosie Healy, head chef of Glasgow restaurant Gloriosa. She shares a recipe for the Italian staple, focaccia. 
my name is Rosie Healy and I am head chef of Gloriosa restaurant in Glasgow where we cook seasonal Mediterranean food and the emphasis is on really good quality ingredients. Okay, so the recipe that I'm going to share with you is focaccia. We make it every day in the restaurant and we are quite well known for it. Um, it's quite, it's delicious and people come to eat it. Uh, it's a fairly simple recipe, but it may sound uh, complicated, but it isn't. So you're going to get a bowl and in that bowl you put 275 grams of warm water. The water needs to be body temperature, so the same temperature as your finger when you put the finger in the water, and not hotter than that. Into that water you add four grams of dried yeast, and you're gonna give that a mix around. And then into there, into that water with the yeast, you add 275 grams of zero zero flour, and you mix that up. Uh, until there's no lumps, no bumps, and it will be quite a wet kind of paste. And this is called a poolish, it's a pre-ferment. Uh, it gives, it's the beginning of bread. So you've got this mixture and you cover your bowl with cling film and you're gonna set that aside for between four to six hours. And when you go back to it, you're gonna look at it and it's gonna be all bubbly and it will look alive. And into this, uh, this bowl, this mixture, what you're now going to add is 175 grams of warm water, the same temperature as the water before, and another four grams of yeast. And you give that a really good mix. And then into that, you add 270 grams of zero zero flour and 20 grams of salt. And you mix it all up using your hands in the bowl and you make sure there's no lumps of flour in there. And then you're gonna get a, a slightly bigger bowl and you pour really good quality olive oil into that bowl. And then you take this mixture and you scrape it into that bowl with olive oil and cover it with cling film. Put it in a warm place and you're gonna leave it for an hour to two hours. And when you go back to it, it will have doubled in size. And now you need to fold the bread and this gives it structure and will make it really chewy. So you can look at a video online, you can to fold bread, but I will describe it, but maybe you should look at a video too. So you lift up um, a corner of, the, of the, the dough with two hands, you give it a good shake and you just fold the bread over on itself and then you turn it, you turn that dough 90 degrees in the bowl and you fold the other side over, just like you're folding paper. And then you turn it another 90 degrees and you do it again and another 90 degrees and you do it again. So it's four folds. You're folding the dough in half four times. So you cover the bread again, you cover the dough with cling film, set it aside for an hour. And when you go back to it, it will have doubled in size again. And you're gonna fold it the same process as you did before, one more time. So four folds and you cover it and you leave it for another hour. And then you go back to it and it will be doubled in size and it will be bouncy, quite wet dough. And you get a, an oven tray, just the size of your oven. And you're gonna line that with uh, baking paper and 
you pour really good quality olive oil over there and you tip this dough out onto that tray. And you should be able to stretch the dough to the size of the tray using your hands and making sure you're stretching it evenly and there's no holes or no thin parts. And it will begin to look like it should. And it's a bouncy dough on this tray. And you'll leave it for an hour and it will relax. And then you preheat your oven to the highest temperature it will go, which if it's domestic is 280 or 300. And you pour olive oil, drizzle olive oil over the top of the dough and you can put rosemary or half tomatoes or olives or oregano or really thin potato. You can choose your topping. But I think you should just, to start, if you put rosemary all over it and sea salt all over the top and then you push your fingers into the focaccia like they do on the telly and all the wee holes will fill with olive oil and make sure there's enough salt on top. And then you pop it in the oven and you bake it for 12 to 15 minutes in the hottest setting. Um, and you can check it halfway through to make sure no corners are burning. And then when it comes out the oven, it should have doubled in size and you want to put it on a baking tray so that the bottom doesn't get soggy. And then you drizzle it with olive oil and leave it to cool down. And hopefully it will be really delicious and you'll enjoy it. And with the BAFTAs this weekend, we had also a very film-heavy week here at Monaco 24. Let's play my interview now with the director, Sarah Dosa. She directed the wonderful Fire of Love about a story of two volcanologists who fell in love. I didn't know about Katya and Racecraft actually before um, we started making the film. Actually, we found out about them quite serendipitously. My team and I, we were finishing the last film uh, I directed, which is a documentary entitled The Seer and the Unseen. That film tells the story of an Icelandic woman uh, who is a seer, and she is in communication with spirits of nature in Iceland, which is a very common belief there and in many parts of the world. Um, we wanted to open that film with shots, archival shots of erupting volcanoes in Iceland to show how Iceland is kind of a world in the making um, in the cycle of the creation and destruction of land. And volcanoes illustrate that so beautifully. So once we started researching archival footage of erupting volcanoes in Iceland, we found Katya and Maurice Kraft because not that many people had done that kind of photography and we instantly just saw how spectacular their images were. But it was once we learned about them as a couple, you know, the fact that they were so in love with each other and the earth, the fact that they had shot hundreds of hours of footage and authored nearly 20 books. We thought, wow, there, there's something really exciting to explore here, um, not just in, in their story, but also in the materials that they left behind. And I want to talk, of course, about the imagery later, but it feels to me such a, a personal film because there are no other like talking heads. It's just basically them talking. I mean, this is so beautiful. And was that your choice from the beginning to do that? It was, yes. It was very important for us to let their archival material speak for itself as much as possible. Um, of course, there's tremendous limitations with any archival uh, record. Um, things are lost to time. Things become systemically erased. Uh, there's all kinds of challenges with our archival filmmaking. 
Um, but we wanted to use kind of their their footage, their words, um, the memories uh, imprinted on their loved ones um, to kind of collage together to, to form the basis of the film. Um, we interviewed an, a number of people who knew them and loved them, including some family members. Uh, we never shot those on camera, though, because we were concerned that if we incorporated those images and, and those testimonies in the film, it would kind of break the temporality uh, of the narrative structure. We really wanted to situate our audience in the, you know, kind of the play-by-play, so to speak, with Katya and Maurice um, to really create this sense of, like, present tense. You're, you're with them uh, every step of the way from, you know, the uh, mundane moments at, at their home in Alsace-France to um, being on the edge of an erupting crater. And there's a wink there between both of them that I think they knew that that documentary like this would come out in a way because they're so camera ready in a way, right? Did you did you also have that impression? We absolutely did. You know, they were incredible filmmakers, um, not just in the cinematography, the images, you know, that they, they captured, but also in, in the stories that they told. They would uh, edit their footage and tour with it around the world. Often it didn't have sound, but they would live narrate their, uh, their journeys with their images projected behind them, often set to music. But they really knew how to engage people uh, with a themselves as, as characters, too. You know, they, of course, had certain outfits that they would wear for um, for safety. For example, they're, they're quite well known for these aluminized suits that make them look like silver robots dancing at the edge of craters. Um, but there was something, uh, there was a utility to kind of how they dressed, too, in terms of a public image. Um, it's such kind of like a beguiling, exciting, otherworldly thing to see these these people dressed like that, um, or so charming. Like, for example, they also wear these, like, red toques, um, that many people associate with like Jacques Cousteau, but uh, all, all to say, Katya and Reese had like a costume and a look that was very true and authentic to them, but at the same time, kind of brought people into um, these characters that they were performing at the same time, and that really introduced people to to their world and to their material. So uh, all, all to say that they really knew how to craft stories uh, around themselves and invite people into. And more culture for you. This time I was joined in studio by Chiara Rimela. We discussed the San Remo Festival and why was it so controversial this year to some. And a little Eurovision preview as well. San Remo is not just a music festival. It's pretty much a completely defining moment in Italian culture for the whole year. It's a week-long televised broadcast that's about music, but it's about society as well. It goes on for ages, for five consecutive nights. The broadcast itself lasts until 2, 3 a.m. every night. There's guests from across the Italian kind of cultural spectrum. And this year, it was, I guess, particularly controversial for a number of reasons. Um, some It started all with a, a famous comedian, uh, Roberto Benigni, also actor and, and director and Oscar winning, um, who delivered a impassioned defense of the constitution and freedom of expression. At the time, it was still quite highbrow. The president of the republic was present, but still the far right kind of in power was felt quite attacked by this particular approach. Then it continued with um, a defense of the legalization of marijuana on stage with this song called Oi Maria, which is a 90s classic by Articolo 31. Then Fedez, who is a very famous rapper and kind of celebrity in Italy, went on stage and improvised a rap, well, delivered a rap um, that included very pointed attacks towards the far right, holding up a photo of a vice minister dressed in Nazi uh, costume for a kind of party dress, dress up type of occasion. Um, 
and ripping this photo, accusing him uh, this of being much worse of other controversies that had been levelled against the festival. Then there was a same-sex kiss uh, and some mimed kind of sexual activity. So the whole thing was completely against a puritanical, conservative, far-right politics uh, that are currently um, at the head of Italian government. Uh, well, Fernando is also here because see, you're our nominated, dedicated Eurovision correspondent. We're going to hear the song in a minute, but there is a clear link, isn't there, Faye, to this part of your uh, the part of your job where you cover Eurovision. Explain how this fits into that bigger picture. Well, first of all, I have to say, I personally, I do enjoy a good controversy in a way, <laughs> especially when it's against a far-right government, you know, but it is quite shocking actually looking at the political side of this that, you know, I, I think Kara would agree that they're even saying, oh, we should change the director uh, of this. This is quite uh, strange. I mean, if it does go through, I mean, it, it's kind of infringing on the on freedom, of, freedom of expression uh, as well. And even Eurovision, I think, to be honest, of course, in Eurovision, you can't have a political song or perhaps overly sexual track. But, you know, you can find ways. Uh, that envelope has been pushed, hasn't ex- it? Exactly. I mean, for example, I mean, I will just give you a spoiler here. The Croatian entry this year, there's some generals in makeup. So it's kind of a, perhaps a criticism to authoritarian regimes. I mean, we don't know. It's a fun track. Uh, but I, I love that. Controversies are needed. Uh, and, and, you know, we shouldn't shy away from that. What's quite interesting is that before the festival happened, much of the attention around potential controversies uh, gathered around the potential presence of Zelensky at the festival, well, Mm. of a video address. Then that didn't happen. They only read a letter by him. And that only happened at like 2.15 in the morning on a Friday or a Saturday. So that became much, much smaller a controversy than all this other stuff. And interestingly, now Berlusconi is saying, you know, if I had been prime minister, I wouldn't have spoken to Zelensky like Giorgio Meloni did at the EU summit last week. What I think is quite interesting interesting is that more so than Meloni being at the EU summit and all the stuff that was happening officially in European circles, what's really been making the headlines and the political scandals this week has been Sanremo, so much more than Meloni's antics abroad. Uh, well, obviously, music is nominally at the heart of what goes on at San Remo. And uh, I did mention in the introduction that there was a contest. It was won by Marco Mengoni with Duevita. I think we can hear a little bit of this, Faye. I'll get your insights in a moment. But let's hear a little bit of the winning song. <laughs> Wow. Uh, Chiara, what you, are, you, are you proud to be Italian today? <laughs> Do you know, the most remarkable thing about that song, we didn't hear it in the clip, but there's a bit of the lyrics where he says that you should drink coffee and lemon against a hangover. So that's good, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's helpful. <laughs> I wouldn't expect that, actually. Yeah. Uh, what I will say about that, what I will, I'm, I'm sure that Fernando will have plenty to say about the value of that song specifically. What I will say about it is that San Remo is such an important moment for Italians that they, they're not really thinking about Eurovision at all. They're just choosing the ballad that they feel the domestic market is most interested in, mm. which is a huge shame because there were other songs in uh, you know, the competition which would have done so much better at Eurovision. And I really, really encourage our listeners to look into Paole Chiara, Furore, you know, incredible slice of proper traditional 90s stuff. 
cugini di campagna, a 70s like glam rock crazy falsetto band which did Lettera 22. Uh, you know, that that would have been such a huge success at Eurovision. But alas, we're stuck with the ballad. And finally on the show, Ivan Carvalho visits Porto's much-loved Mercado do Bolhão to uncover the legacy of an urban landmark that continues to bring residents together. Porto's Bolhão Market has long been a hub of activity. Already in 1837, officials drew up plans for a market square and structure at the intersection of Rua de Fernandes Tomás and Sabandeira, for the city on the Douro River. The name Bulhão, which means bubble in Portuguese, comes from a local stream where water once pooled in the streets after heavy rains. In 1914, the site was upgraded with a design by Antonio Correa da Silva, who created a neoclassical marvel in homage to the beau art style in France. The plan called for pitched iron roofs, sweeping stone staircases, and rounded domes atop the south facade. The result was an impressive work of architecture that locals quickly learned to love, given that for decades it would serve as the main supplier of food for residents. Yet the main draw of this open-air market isn't so much its architecture as it is its tenants. Today there are 80 stalls hosting fishmongers, butchers and fruit and veg vendors next to stands selling flowers, baked goods and wine. Here one can grab an espresso or sandwich on the go, and unlike today's supermarkets, the atmosphere is never dreary or claustrophobic. Shoppers wander the aisles and chat with vendors, many with businesses here for three generations or more, and who can explain in intimate detail the products they sell. At Salsicheria Luisa, one finds chorizo, cured ham, and homemade tribe sausages prepared with fresh herbs. Nearby, there is Serra Arujo who rises early each day to visit fishermen in nearby Matosinhos to collect freshly caught sardines and squid. Today's market is less cramped than it was 30 years ago, when another wing of the building was open for business. The space now is decidedly modern on the ground floor, with roomier aisles to let baby strollers and the elderly pass without having to make room for deliveries from suppliers. A new covering to protect from the sun and rain was installed at the open-air market as part of a methodical renovation that took four years to complete. While Porto residents may have more options today for grocery shopping, Bullion retains a certain charm. It creates a welcoming space where people can socialize while they run errands. A century on, this open-air market remains a vital piece of the city's social fabric. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.